Good morning. If one couldn't preach uh, after that singing, uh, there was no preacher in them. It was, it was excellent this morning. If you would turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians, the third chapter, I'll be reading this morning from the New King James Version, uh, the first three verses. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning asking you to fill our minds, incline our minds towards your word, asking you to implant it deeply within our hearts, asking you to move our wills that we might put it into practice. We pray you bless this time of special worship together as we sit before your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a very difficult childhood, to say the least. And it only got worse as I became a teenager. And one day I came home from school, and quite frankly, I just had enough. So I took an old military backpack and I filled it with clothes and then I put in some books because I've always loved books. And the next morning, instead of going to school, I got a ride to Marco, Indiana in I-69. I had $25 in my pocket. That was my entrance into adulthood. And I began to hitchhike. It was Friday the 13th, February. And it was cold and windy and the snow was spitting. And so I headed south. And two days later, I found myself in Lovington, New Mexico. Now, Lovington, New Mexico is part of the Lana Estacada, the State Plains, a place of sand and scrub brush and cactus. Maybe some of you have driven through there. Uh, I was, of course, by that time, pretty broke. I had a couple of dollars in folding money. I had a pocket full of change. I had left everything behind. There were no turning back. I cut all ties with any friends, all ties with any family. And I was on my own there in Lovington. So the thing about that part of New Mexico is that it's part of the Permian Basin, a huge oil field that stretches all the way from eastern New Mexico into West Texas, the Midland and Odessa. And so I went out looking for work. And right away, the very first place I went, they hired me. They hired me as a laborer on a pipeline. And my job, and I was working with all Hispanics, except for the ditcher operator, my job was to go behind the ditcher machine when they dug the trench for the pipeline 
and I carried a shovel and I shoveled out the sand or I removed the rocks and that's what I did all day long. I couldn't talk to the people I worked with because they were all Hispanic and I couldn't speak their language. But after about a week or so, they gave me a promotion and I don't think they gave it to me because I was such a great worker. I think they gave it to me because I was white. And so my job became, I had to go ahead of the ditching machine as they dug the trench and I'd find the survey markers, I would measure out, I had a hammer and I had stakes and I'd drive them in the ground. They had no GPS. And so the man on the ditching machine would line up with the stakes and then he'd just dig a ditch. And so that's what I did all day long. I measured, I hammered, I walked some more, measured, hammered. We kept digging a ditch. This went on for a week or so and then one day I went out and I couldn't find a single marker. It was sandy and the wind had blown. There was nothing out there to, to mark where the pipeline was supposed to go. So I went back to the operator. I said, listen, there's no markers out there. I can't find a single one. Oh, he cursed me out. He said, you get out there and you find a marker. I said, all right. So I went out and I scoured around the desert and finally I found one. I was so happy I measured out, drove in a stake and away we went. And about two weeks later, they pulled up in some fancy trucks. They got out and they began to survey. And come to find out, I had found the wrong markers. We were headed nine miles off course. Now they had me in a circle of people and they're all looking at me and it's all my fault. And I felt really bad about it. They didn't fire me. They put me to work in a pecan grove where I couldn't get lost. But I got thinking about it later. I said, who in the world would take a 17-year-old kid, pay him $2.85 an hour, and put him in charge of where a pipeline is going to head? <laughs> and then sometime later when I became a Christian, I thought, maybe there's an illustration in all of that. <laughs> because you see in the Word of God, there are certain markers set forth that define what the Christian life is all about. I mean, some of those markers are doctrinal markers, things that you must believe if you're going to be a child of God. You have to believe in the inspiration of Scripture. You believe in the virgin birth, that God became flesh and dwelt among us. You believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. You believe that we are saved by grace through faith, apart from the works of the law. These are doctrinal things that we must believe. But yet, here in the text before us, he points out some things that I wouldn't call exactly doctrinal things, but they're experiential things. That which takes place in the heart of the true believer. It's what Henry Skugel, the 17th century Scottish writer wrote, the life of God in the soul of man. What does the life of God in the soul of man look like? Now, I'm not preaching this morning these things because I believe they're not present here in the church. I'm doing it because after 40 years of being a Christian, I realized something. Everything doesn't always burn brightly. We're not always a flame for God. Sometimes we burn down. Sometimes we become just a little bit of an ember of a fire and we lose some of that zeal. But you know the good news is that it's never ever, if you're a child of God, it is never ever ever totally lost. 
Isaiah the prophet said of Jesus Christ, a burning wick he will not snuff out. We may burn down sometimes. We may burn down when we begin to doubt whether or not we're a child of God, and yet God will never ever say, you're just a burning wick that needs to be snuffed out. No, instead, he feeds us gently. He deals with us gently. He brings that ember back to life, that flame back again. And that's my hope this morning, that we will stir up that flame of fire within us until it burns more and more brightly. Now the context of Philippians chapter 3 is that some false teachers have come into the church and they were saying, yes, it's okay, go ahead on, believe in Jesus, but Jesus is not enough. If you really want to be a child of God, you're going to have to, you Gentiles are going to have to also be circumcised. So they were adding something to the gospel. And Paul, of course, is a great champion, defender of the gospel. He doesn't miss any words. He spells it right out very clearly. He calls them dogs. He calls them mutilators. I mean, he's not fooling around. He's making it clear that what they are teaching by adding something to Jesus Christ is the complete opposite of what we ought to be believing. And you know something when we think about the idea of circumcision in the Bible? God never intended for circumcision to be merely something that happens to the flesh. Even in the Old Testament, God taught Israel that their hearts need to be circumcised. That it's an inward thing. And Paul says that in Romans chapter 2. He says circumcision is not outward. It's not something that takes place in the flesh, but circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, and not by the law. And so what he is saying here is when he uses the word circumcision, he's saying, who are the true children of God? Are they the children of God because of some outward, physical, ritual? Or are they the children of God because of something that's happened deep within their hearts? He says, I want you to know something. The children of God have certain characteristics, certain markers. And as with doctrinal markers, if we don't pay attention to these, we can be led astray, and many churches and many people have been led astray, and no longer are they walking with God. They're going down their own pathway. They're nine miles or 10 miles or 100 miles off course. And we also need to pay attention to these spiritual indicators deep within our own hearts. Now, the first one that he points out to us is that we worship in the Spirit of God, or we worship God in the Spirit, and they both mean the same thing. It's just a matter of word order. Now, the NIV has uh, the word serve. Other translations say worship. I'm going with the word worship for a very good reason. This is not the typical Greek word for serve. It is a word that means to serve God in religious service. And so the word really means to worship God. They worship in the spirit of God. They worship by the spirit of God. You know, God created man that man might worship. And I'm going to tell you something. Every single person on the face of the earth, without any exception, worships. Everybody worships. They may worship possessions. They may worship people, they may worship this false god, or they may worship that. 
But every single individual living on this earth worships something. Now, I was preparing for a different lesson, and I was looking up the word self and, and all the connections with self, the hyphenated words, you know? You know, like self-confidence, you know, self-love, those type of words. I was looking through it. There are some 760 words connected with the word self, but you know what the last word was in the Webster's Dictionary? Self-worship. Self-worship. All these self-words, it all comes down, boils down to the fact that man wants to worship in his own way, and man worships self. But the child of God worships by the Spirit of God. You know, something tremendous and amazing has happened in the life of every single individual who places faith in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, you know, you were dead. I mean, you were alive physically, but you were dead spiritually. He says you were dead. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together with Christ and made us sit together with Christ in the heavenly places. You see, God infuses within us brand new spiritual life. We are alive, and the response of that life is that of worship. And I know when it comes to the idea of worship, I'm not talking now just about gathering together on Sunday morning. I'm talking about a lifestyle that involves worshiping the true and living God. I often think about worship, thoughts of God, in a circumstance of life, kind of like a bird stuck in a cage. Because we have all these cares and these problems in life and all these distractions around us. And sometimes our minds have to be concerned with these things. We have work, we have other things. Our minds have to be bound down to some degree within the earth. But just like you open the door of that bird cage and that bird begins to fly free, I'll tell you something, the child of God, when their mind is free to think about whatever they want to think about, their mind turns towards God. Like that bird from that cage, their mind lifts up in a spirit of worship unto God, in thoughts and great thoughts of God, in thoughts of Christ and what Christ has done, in thoughts of the inward work of the Spirit, in thoughts of the people of God. It's a worshiping heart. And that's one of the marks of a genuine child of God. We don't always burn bright in that area. Sometimes we smolder down. But the sign of a child of God is that they delight in worshiping their God. Then the second thing he says, they rejoice in Christ Jesus. They rejoice or they glory, some translations say, in Christ Jesus. Now, the Bible says that the very moment we were made alive, had that new life infused in us, had that new orientation towards God, at that very same moment we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now the seal of the Holy Spirit is not just putting some kind of stamp on an individual. It means that the Spirit of God has come to live within us. Jesus said, I will send you another helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, 
Some translations say comforter, helper is a better word. But I'll send you another helper. And that word another doesn't mean another of a different kind. It means another one just like him. In fact, Paul says, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ is in us by the Holy Spirit. Someone would ask, well, what does the Holy Spirit look like? What is his personality? I know exactly what the personality of the Holy Spirit is. The personality of the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ. As Christ has revealed unto us what God the Father is like, he has revealed unto us what the Holy Spirit is like. The Holy Spirit is just like Jesus, and he comes to live within us. Now, what is he doing in there? Occupying space, moving around? What, what's going on inside? Well, that's where comes what I call the humiliation of the Godhead, the humble God that we serve. Because Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, he will glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and give it to you. Now, watch the humility of the Godhead. What is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit is working our lives to constantly remind us of Christ. The Holy Spirit is not saying, look at me. The Holy Spirit is saying, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, look at the Father. Look at the Father. Look at the Father. You see the humility. And what is the Father saying? Oh, there's my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. They're all pointing towards one another all together in unity. And we, as children of God, who have that Spirit living within us, what is the Spirit doing? He is pointing us, reminding us, continually pushing us more and more towards Christ and rejoicing more and more in Him. What a wonderful thing it is, you know, to be able to just glory and rejoice in Christ. Rejoice in the fact that he existed before the foundation of the world with the Father. Rejoice in the very fact that he became flesh. He humbled himself. He walked on this earth. He suffered temptation as we must suffer. He suffered the hardships of life and understands what we go through. Rejoice in the fact that there upon the cross he bore our sin in his body, suffering shame dying a death that we deserve, and yet not the end of it, for he was buried and rose again and ever reigns on our behalf in the heavens. And that's what the spirit of a living God is doing in each one of our lives. And I know sometimes we burn down and we tend to get forgetful, but I'll tell you that nudge you feel inside to say pick up that Bible and think on things and your mind goes back to Jesus and the things that Jesus has done for you and a spirit of prayer comes over you. That didn't come from you. That didn't come from the flesh. That came from a living God who dwells within you by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. These are marks of true Christians. Yes, what does a child of God do? They worship. They worship in the Spirit of God. But not only that, they rejoice in all that Christ has done for them. And then the last thing that I would point out is they have no confidence in the flesh. Now the flesh is anything that you can do apart from God. There's a lot of things you can do apart from God. There's a lot of things you can accomplish, even religious things, without inviting God into the whole mix. People do it all the time. 
Now, Paul is going to go on. He's going to list, and I'm not going to read the long text. He's going to list some of those things because he begins to drag out his pedigree. He said, hey, if there's anybody around here, I'll be boasting about the flesh. It's me, Paul. Did you look at my family pedigree? I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, a great tribe. Not only that, I'm a Pharisee, a strict religious man. Not only that, I am very moral. He goes on to say that I kept the law blamelessly. That's as far as man's concerned, not as far as God was concerned. But he said, I kept the law. And he went through all these different things. He was a man of great zeal. And you know what he ends up saying in Philippians chapter 3? He said, when I look at all those things that I did in the power of the flesh, I considered them to be nothing but rubbish. Nothing but dung. Why? He said, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, I count them as nothing for the excellency of Christ Jesus, my Lord. You know, I want you to know something this morning. I believe with all my heart, there is not a single thing that any one of us individually or collectively can do apart from Jesus Christ that has any lasting spiritual significance. Amen. Now, I didn't make that up. That's John chapter 15 and verse 5 where he talks about the vine and the branches and about abiding in the vine. And what did Jesus say in verse 5? He said, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, where is the confidence in the flesh? Gone, gone. What comes in to replace that confidence in the flesh? Confidence in God. Confidence in what Christ has done. Confidence in the work of the Spirit within. That'll fill you with real confidence. We don't need the self-confidence the world seeks after. We need God-confidence. I had someone talk to me one time about self-esteem. I said, I don't really care about self-esteem. I don't really think much of myself. To be honest with you, I don't. But you know something? What we need is God-esteem. God-esteem. What God says about us is true no matter how we feel. And we can try to muster up some kind of self-esteem, boast ourselves up, try to strut around a little bit, but I tell you, it all fall flat. It is God-esteem. It's the work of God within. There is no confidence to be had in the flesh, but all confidence to be held within God. I want to close uh, this morning by reminding you of something that Paul wrote to the young preacher, Timothy. I assume by reading through 1st and 2nd Timothy that Timothy had his struggles. Uh, he had his problems dealing with the church and things as any pastor would have and does have. But what Paul said to him was this. He said, stir up, fan the flame. Stir up the gift of God that is in you. And elsewhere, Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica. He said, do not quench, which means do not put out the Spirit's fire. And I would say this morning, let us all be found dwelling upon God, in the Word of God, in prayer, in fellowship, 
in encouraging one another to press on and reminding one another of what God has done, what God is doing, what God will do. And may we be found to be people who worship in the Spirit of God, people who rejoice continually in Christ Jesus and, all, and place no confidence in the flesh. Thank you.